0: to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larrison, as we bring you each week a little taste of the Washington swamp, which is rife with corruption, greed, conformity, and hypocrisy. Our podcast focuses on the military-industrial complex, which I would say is the predominant element in this swampy ecosystem. Just this week, we celebrated the 61st anniversary of President Eisenhower's farewell speech, in which he coined the military industrial complex for the first time. 6 days, 6 decades later, the war machine and its accompanying handmaidens in Congress, the federal government, Washington think tanks, academia and defense industry have grown to proportions perhaps Eisenhower wouldn't even recognize. So it is our job to keep calling it out and pressing for reform as difficult as that might seem. One area in which the military-industrial complex has been able to gain a foothold over the last several decades is in the NATO alliance. We'll be talking to Josh Shifrinson from Boston University about this very subject in the next half of the program. But first, let's talk a little bit about NATO. The North Atlantic Cold War Defense Alliance has now grown to 30 countries, even though the Cold War is over and its core mission seems to be elusive as ever. The last three decades have seen an expansion to the Middle East with membership granted to Turkey and in operations in Libya and into Eastern Europe, absorbing former Warsaw Pact members and promising potential membership to other Baltic states all the way up to Russia's borders. This has created enormous tension with Moscow, which is now demanding promises that NATO will expand no more. But is NATO even necessary? An article published in Foreign Affairs by Michael Kimmage over the weekend suggests that the alliance is too big for its own good, that it is a, quote, loose and baggy monster, quote in which its sheer enormity and the murkiness of its mission risk embroiling NATO in a major European war. Dan, this is an interesting article that is taking on a sacred cow in the U.S. defense community can you talk a little bit about what Kimage is suggesting here, and do you agree?
1: Uh, yeah, well, so I, I can start with the, the second question first. I, I definitely agree. Uh, I I think that the the door to native expansion should have been closed a long time ago. Uh, I mean, probably sooner, maybe than than he thinks that it should have been closed. He he definitely agrees now that it should be closed today, and and that's an important point because he, what he does is make. Uh, the case for closing the door on NATO expansion from a, an expressly Atlanticist position. He he thinks that further expansion endangers the alliance. It threatens to break it up. It threatens to to jeopardize the security that it does provide today. Uh, and and I think that's right. Uh, the the people that should be most opposed to NATO further NATO expansion are people that actually think that NATO is a valuable alliance. Uh, and and but it's often the case that people that support uh, the alliance and have supported previous rounds of expansion, have this kind of doctrinal commitment to this idea that we have to keep the door open to any new member that wants to join, because if we were to shut them out, then that somehow uh, caves into the Russians, or or gives the Russians their their dreaded sphere of influence, and we and we simply can't allow that, and so that it's, it's become a, a kind of rigid ideological position among a lot of Atlantisists that you. You can't close the door because if you do, then you have somehow betrayed the core purpose of the alliance or something. Uh, and And that's really not what the open door was intended to be. Uh, the The idea that you have to keep expanding forever, or you have to keep open the possibility of expansion forever, uh, or else you're you're somehow betraying your core principles, Uh, is is untenable. Uh, It's ultimately unsustainable because at some point you have to draw a line on the map where you say, we're not going to go past this line. And that that can actually be reassuring and stabilizing uh, because if the Russians perceive NATO as their principal threat, and they do, then a continuously expanding NATO is an ever-increasing threat to Russia from their perspective. And they're going to respond uh, very negatively to that as we have seen them already doing with Ukraine and Georgia. And so simply taking that off the table, not only reassures Russia, but it's actually in the best interests of the alliance too. And so what, what I found really valuable about the Kimage piece is that he's making the case uh, for this uh, in, in a way that, that should appeal to people that want the alliance to survive. Uh, and, and it's not, being against expansion is not to be against NATO necessarily. Uh, it's, it's to be in favor of a kind of rational security structure that actually provides for common defense, which is what NATO was always supposed to be.
0: You know, one of the things that I see most often when I'm reading about NATO uh, from more of a defender's position is that NATO is in existence to defend democracies across the globe. Is that the original intent or mission of NATO?
1: Well, no. I mean, right. It, it, it was not the original intent. It was supposed to be a purely uh, defensive alliance uh, for collective security for Western Europe initially, uh, and then as new members were brought in, uh, that that collective security was being expanded, uh, extended to them. Uh, but as NATO expansion and EU expansion got paired together after the Cold War, there was this idea. Uh, that essentially we we sh- should make it into a club of democracies, and that it is in fact uh, sort of a just a club of nations. It stopped people stopped thinking about it properly as a military alliance, and they kept they started thinking about it as a as a sort of alliance based on values right. first. Uh, and so this then becomes tangled up with all of these ideas about promoting democracy. Uh, with with the so-called color revolutions in the former Soviet Union, and, and unfortunately, tangling those things up together have actually exacerbated the problem as far as creating insecurity in Moscow, because when the Russians look at this pairing of a, a democracy promotion agenda and an ex- expanding military alliance, they, they see a double threat. They see a threat not only to their physical security, potentially, But they also see a threat to the stability of their own government because they think that the alliance is sort of working hand in glove with these democracy promotion efforts uh, as a way of uh, interfering in their affairs. And so the Russians become kind of neuralgic on two fronts at the same time uh, because they see these things as being linked. And and to the extent that we can de-link them now, I mean, I don't know that it can be completely done anymore. But if we could somehow separate out what the alliance is for uh, from, let's say, the expansion of the EU, then you might be able to calm some of those nerves.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. It it only it almost seems as though NATO has become almost de facto United Nations attached to a military. Uh, defense architecture. And I say that, I mean, obviously very loosely, but when you do think of it more as a league of democracies, rather than the, the Cold War defense mechanism that it was, it starts to become this sort of club that you mentioned in which any Anyone who can prove that they fit the the guidelines or the qualifications of being a democracy in what we perceive as a democracy, the West, uh, can join. And and then it becomes this de facto us versus them organizational structure that, as you rightly point out, that Russia is chafing against because they're always on the outs of this particular setup. can you ask another question? And I'm sure we'll talk to Josh about this. You know, the fact that the United States is now putting in more than 3% of its GDP into NATO in terms of funding it. We're the only country that's putting in, and I'm looking at, I guess, the most recent figures 3.6% of our GDP goes to keeping NATO supplied and afloat. Um, there are no other countries that put that much in. Uh, we are far, in a way, the biggest funders of the alliance. How uh, how does this uh, square in terms of other countries? Do you, do you think that they are actually using NATO as their own defense because it, they won't put in as much for their own personal state defense? That NATO is sort of their de facto. Uh, Military.
1: Well, I I think a lot of European allies are—they are are effectively security dependents on the U.S. Uh, They—they expect the U.S. to be there to uh, provide for their defense, and uh, they—they kind of assume that that's always going to be there. And so, so we've—and we've seen with uh, military spending levels across the alliance, there are very few members that meet. the, the targets set for military spending at various NATO summits, uh, simply because they know that they don't have to. They, they they can they can they can free ride, as as the the phrase goes, and that they can get away with that because, in fact, the security threats to Europe have not been that great in the post Cold War era. Uh, of course, as as tensions have risen with Russia, uh, that picture has started to change. But but what we see is that those tensions have risen in large part because the alliance keeps trying to expand. Uh, and so, so the alliance, on the one hand, breeds dependency in its members, uh, but it's also creating instability on its frontiers, uh, which, which is a, a really bad combination, especially if you're looking at it from the American perspective, because then we're on the hook to to bail out these countries in the event that a conflict ever does spread into NATO territory. Uh, and and I, I'm hopeful that it won't. I don't think it will in the near term, but it, it does show the 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 basic folly of bringing a lot of these countries into a military alliance where they're not actually contributing that much to collective security they're not uh, they're not pulling their own weight they're not uh, and, and and really there's no reason to expect them to be able to right. because a lot of these countries are quite small and many of them are not especially wealthy uh, and, and of course as we brought some of these new states in the balkans in uh, you you really have to wonder what the, the purpose of that is uh, except uh, to pave the way for their membership in the EU because the two of those things have been so closely linked now over the last few decades. Uh, and so you, you have the sort of the silly prospect of North Macedonia being brought into the alliance so that it can be defended against whom? you know Who, who is going to attack North Macedonia? Nobody. Uh, NATO membership sem- essentially serves as a, a checking off of the box on their EU application as a way of saying, "Oh yes, you're they're good enough for NATO, so they should be uh, a worthy candidate for you." And that's that's simply not a way to run a military alliance. That's not why you have military alliances, uh, but because the security situation in Europe for the last twenty five years at least has been so good, uh, NATO has been allowed to essentially forget what it's for. And, and that's also why you had NATO going on all of these so-called out-of-area operations, uh, because they have nothing to do in Europe. And, and, that's, and I, you know, I think that's still true today. Uh, despite the Ukraine crisis, there, there isn't actually a real threat to NATO members. Uh, NATO members are not the ones that are in, in jeopardy. Uh, but it is, it is the, the prospect of bringing Ukraine into NATO uh, that has generated uh, the current crisis or at least has been a major contributor to it.
0: And what about Turkey? I mean, this was the first expansion into the Middle East. What kind of conflicts are we seeing with Turkey um, between its own state interests and the interests of NATO? I feel like with Turkey, there are a lot of conflicts there. And there are people like Doug Bandau who have written pieces about whether or not Turkey even belongs in the alliance. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean, the the trick about bad members in the alliance is that there's not there's no way to kick them out effectively uh, that it was never no no one ever envisioned a scenario where we would need to kick somebody out of the yeah. alliance because it was assumed that uh, some there would be a collective security interest in keeping all the allies together uh and i mean turkey is one, one of the older members of nato they were brought in i believe uh in the 50s and they were uh they were included as a very deliberately as a, a way of guarding against uh, the Soviet Union. Of course, now that Soviet Union is no more, you, you might ask, what purpose does the, the Turkish military in NATO serve? Uh, because mostly, what the Turkish government does these days is uh, engage in various uh, misguided adventures in Syria and Libya uh, and uh, and also in uh, Karabakh. Uh, and so, there, there is a, a strong case to be made that. Turkey is not really working in the best interests of NATO security or European security. Yeah. Um, but the, the, that's the problem with uh, including new members into the alliance is that once they're in, they're, they're in. There's no way to get rid of them. Uh, I guess short of refusing to extend your, your security guarantees yeah. to them in the event of a crisis. Uh, but I I'd, I'd very much doubt that NATO would be willing to do that and just leave them hanging out to dry in the event that they were attacked by someone.
0: Right, um, but would they, have, would they have NATO's back if there was a conflict with Russia? Because they have their own uh, relationship with Russia.
1: It's, well, uh, I, I guess we, we can't know for sure, but my guess is that they would probably... Uh, they would probably still stick with the alliance if there were an actual uh armed conflict with the Russians, uh, because they have they have their own historical memories of, of being uh attacked and or being at war with the Russians in the past. Uh, they certainly have no great love for the Russians. Uh, to the extent that they've pursued a more independent foreign policy uh vis-a-vis other powers, uh, I, I think that has to do with their carving out their own uh their own sphere of influence
2: yeah.
1: in their part of the world and so they're you know they're willing to be opportunistic in their dealings with with some other states but i think when it comes down to it they, they would still end up on nato's side if if there were in fact a conflict uh, but that that conflict seems extremely unlikely to happen uh, provided that nato doesn't go looking for it
0: yeah
1: Today is Josh Schifferensen. He is Associate Professor of International Relations at the Party School of Global Studies at Boston University and the author of Rising Titans, Following Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. His work has appeared with International Security, the Journal of Strategic Studies and Foreign Affairs, among others. His teaching and research interests focus on the intersection of international security and diplomatic history, particularly the rise and fall of great powers and the origins of grand strategy. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a delight to be here.
1: And uh, Yeah, we're we're happy to have you on, too. Uh, I, I've enjoyed your stuff uh, over the years uh, very much, and uh, so we're, we're happy to have you. Um, one of the things that you wrote most recently was a very interesting article with Stephen Wertheim addressing the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, where you reject a common hawkish credibility argument that the U.S. has to defend Ukraine in order to discourage China from attacking Taiwan. Instead, you and Stephen argued that the U.S. would be wise to apply its handling of Taiwan to Ukraine. Can you tell us more about what that would mean in practice for U.S. policy?
2: Sure. It's a really important question. What do do the lessons of Taiwan have for the crisis in Ukraine, the possible Russian intervention in Ukraine, and the questions over what the United States and the NATO allies should do about it? I mean, look, the current crisis in Ukraine involves a claim that the U.S. cannot possibly recognize that – Ukraine doesn't have the right to choose its alliances. And that in turn, Russia's efforts to negotiate over Ukraine's head insist that Ukraine basically remain Somewhat in a Russian sphere of influence, but more broadly, not become part of the American-led European order, are somehow wrong or at odds with American foreign policy. And in this piece, Stephen and I really challenge this, this notion, right? We note that in the 1970s and 1980s, the United States pivoted from claiming that Taiwan, the Republic of China, was the legitimate China, was that was the duly recognized government of China. To instead recognize that the People's Republic of China, you know, centered in, in Beijing, is the you know, quote unquote recognized China. And we did this, we the United States did this by saying, look, we recognize China, mainland China's position, that there is one China, that Taiwan is a breakaway province of China. We don't recognize we don't necessarily agree with that, but we're not gonna do anything to upset the status quo. And we built into that an idea, we the United States built into that an idea saying look, any change in the status quo has to occur through peaceful means. And in other words, the U.S. agreed to neutralize Taiwan as a, as a cleavage point, as a, as a focal point in U.S.-Chinese relations. And obviously, it's picked back up in the last 10 years or so. But for 30 years, this basic framework kept the peace. And our point is to say, when we apply this same logic to ukraine of course ukraine is not part of russia we're not making that f- that follow one point but the idea is the united states agreed to neutralize the issue recognize that taiwan was important to china just as the u.s could recognize ukraine is uniquely important to russia and in that sense craft a modus operandi that would help that help stabilize relations and get us onto a more peaceful less war-prone path
1: definitely and I, I think that Makes a lot of sense, and uh, and that, that dovetails with a lot of proposals that we've seen uh, related to Ukraine regarding uh, talking about a treaty of neutrality, modeled along the lines of the one that was uh, implemented with Austria, uh, and uh, and also uh, there have been comparisons with the status of Finland during the Cold War as well. Right. Uh, although in, in the case of Finland, that was more a case of really being in the in the Soviet sphere of influence uh, more uh, more directly than in the case of Austria. Domestic
2: autonomy, um, a lot of foreign policy constraints.
1: Right, right. Exactly. Uh, well, one of the things that has come up in the debate over Ukraine has been uh, the debate about NATO expansion, uh, both uh, in, the, in the the future, the possibility of future expansion, and also the, the beginnings of NATO expansion in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. And there's been an ongoing debate over the question of the Western assurances given to the USSR and Russia uh, about NATO expansion, uh, where Russia maintains that Moscow was promised that there would be no eastward expansion beyond Germany. Uh, many Atlanticists, of course, deny that any promises were made. And even if they were made, they shouldn't have been taken seriously. Uh, what, what does the record show, and why does it matter to current debates?
2: Well, well, I'm glad you raised this question. I've been investigating this topic for about 10 years. Uh, there's a funny backstory to how I got into it that I won't bore you with, but if we have time, I can tell that story. Uh, but at the end of the day let's move away from the phrase promises right that that confuses the matter or pledges that confuses the matter throughout the course of 1990 during the negotiations surrounding german reunification the core question between the united states and the soviet union which had been the which were the main backers of the federal republic of germany west germany and the german democratic republic east germany was what will be nato's role in the future of post-cold war europe right and this came up in the context of should Germany reunify, and if so, would it be aligned with the United States or neutral? But it was more broadly a question over the future of Europe's security order, Europe's security architecture. And in the negotiations surrounding German reunification, which were bundled with these broader questions, the United States repeatedly offered diplomatic assurances – and I'm going to use the phrase assurances – Telling the Soviet leadership that number one, NATO was not going to expand across the rest of Eastern Europe, and countries like Poland and Czechoslovakia were certainly in discussions at this moment in time, were certainly in the brains of different policymakers at this moment in time. And then number two, that Soviet security interests more broadly would be recognized and respected. And the Soviets of course didn't want to be isolated or left out in the cold or seen as losers in Secretary of State Jim Baker's uh very apt phrase in post cold war Europe. And these assurances were given most directly in February of 1990, but the assurances came up in various other guises, and the terms that we kind of fulfill these assurances came up throughout the spring and summer of 1990. So when it comes to what Russian leaders claimed that their Soviet predecessors were promised or assured, I come down very strongly on the side of, yes, these were there were assurances given. They were informal. They were never codified. But lots of diplomacy hinges on informal guarantees. The Cuban Missile Crisis ended because of informal guarantees, for goodness sake. Questions over whether Britain would aid France in World War I were based on informal assurances. So these things matter. And I think the United States today and people like Secretary of State Anthony Blinken are, frankly, speaking out of both sides of their mouths on, on, on the matter and kind of lying to their teeth if I'm going to be less than generous.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Josh. I have a bunch of questions, but um I was wondering if we can just go back quickly to sure. your first um, the, your first answer to Daniel's first question, rather. Um, you know, in the court of public opinion, one might ask, well, Ukraine is a sovereign state, a democratic elected government. They are resisting. Uh, Russians uh, coming in and uh, mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. taking um, taking over, say, the Donbass and, and bringing that region back into the sphere of influence. Um, what do you say to critics who argue that perhaps we shouldn't be so concerned about Russia's interests in this part of Ukraine? Why shouldn't we be concerned about what the Democratic elected government of Ukraine wants and that kind of and I'm being the devil's advocate here but sure. I feel like that's what that's what many people are looking at right now and seeing they're seeing russian right. incursion rather than us uh than uh, russian interests
2: right well so uh, we should be clear about this it, it is a tragedy what's happening between russia and ukraine right now thousands of ukrainians might die you know hundreds of russians might die under certain circumstances this is a tragedy and of course as an american i i like the idea of supporting democracy i like the idea of helping a democratically elected government you know they, it speaks to me at a very visceral ideological level uh at, at the same time though the question of what of what the United States should do in response to all this requires thinking through what American interests entail. And if the United States is going to, number one, uh, let me clarify that. If the United States seeks uh, stability and seeks to help a democratically elected government, it should be trying to avoid provoking a foreign response that could kill many thousands of people and perhaps displace that government entirely, point number one. Point number two, for the United States itself, the question becomes what best suits American national interests, which are, by the way, democratically elected and, held and filtered through the lens of democracy. And there the question becomes, does it really help the United States to have bad relations with a nuclear-armed, heavily militarized power such as Russia? You know, I I, I tend to look at the situation and again going, I like democracy, but I also believe major states have to avoid contests with each other and have lots and should try to encourage cooperation with each other when feasible. And I come away from this look saying, you know, the United States has an interest in helping Ukraine, but it also has an interest in getting along well with Russia. And when these two things conflict I think, on balance, avoiding death in Ukraine and the United States right now is gambling with Ukrainian lives and trying to put American relations with Russia on a less conflictual, I'm not even going to say cooperative, but a less conflictual path, strikes me as very much in the national interest, yeah, even to the, to the lens of democracy.
0: In that vein, do you think uh, that the United States, vis-a-vis Anthony Blinken and our State Department, are doing enough to avoid the inevitable, which some people are talking about right now, inevitable, drastic escalation, which could include a Russian invasion of Ukraine.
2: Uh, So you're asking whether I feel that the U.S. State Department, the current U.S. government, is doing enough to avoid circumstances that might provoke a Russian invasion, incursion, whatever the heck you want to call it. No, my answer is a a firm no. I, I actually think the United States is kind of pouring gasoline on the fire and i think american analysts have revealed uh, in some sense the reality of it look the russians have been very clear about what they ostensibly want to prevent uh invasion now i don't actually know what vladimir putin and his, and his ilk really want uh but let's just take their statements at face value they want a guarantee that nato will not enlarge to include ukraine and that ukraine will not serve as a base for hosting uh strategic weapons that could strike russia right and the American response to this has been to frame it not as a question of what the future of Ukraine is, but the future of the international order and NATO's broader open door. Now, the United States, of course, has lots of reasons not to give in to blackmail. And we should not understate those. Stephen Walt has a column out today in foreign policy making exactly that same point. I, I firmly agree with him. But the question is, um, what should the United States do to lower tensions? And so the United States, by emphasizing the Its rights or the importance of an open door NATO policy is basically thumbing its nose at the Russian demands. And moreover, by saying we are not going to even consider the possibility, maybe we'll talk about strategic weapons, we're not going to talk about the future of NATO in Ukraine, uh, we're reminding the Russians that American policy might change in the future, which makes the future impact the present. So we're actually doubling down on the very conditions that might encourage a Russian incursion. And by the way, uh, many people uh, on, on Twitter and other social media claim that Putin knows that uh, the U.S. is never going to take Ukraine into NATO, and therefore, there's no point in giving a public declaration. But you can turn the issue around. You know, it, 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 If we're not going to take Ukraine into NATO, then why not simply declare it and say, this is a one-time deal. We're talking about Ukraine. And of course, you have to establish the diplomacy behind this. But the Conversations conversation surrounding Ukraine kind of reveals the banality of the conversation and how the U.S. is pouring gasoline on the Ukraine crisis by thumbing its nose, in my opinion, at Russia's concerns. And which, by the way, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't necessarily agree with Russian demands. I think Russia is acting like a bunch of thugs in a lot of ways. But that doesn't change the reality that when lives are on the line, strategic interests are at play. International politics is a brutal, thuggish business, and sometimes you have to play a nasty game. No, I just said about, the, I, I just oh, want to. Ahead, I'm Kelly.
0: sorry, Dan, and I'm and I fully meant you to take this over. But what are they being thuggish about? Like when you say thuggish, which demands yeah. are thuggish? Which ones are more realistic in your
2: view? Oh, I. I, I mean, look. When I say thuggish, I. I. I don't view. Um, I think. I. I think Russia is being way too aggressive with how it's issuing its demands i don't find it surprising i find it lamentable but i don't find it surprising that moscow wants a de facto sphere of influence on its borders I, that i don't find surprising that's not necessarily thuggish what's thuggish is mobilizing 100,000 troops sending intelligence officers sending covert actors and using cyber operations against ukraine that's thuggish behavior that's blackmail right uh, and I don't like that one iota, and I'd like to find somebody to you know to push back on Russia on this point. But that's a tactical issue; that's an operational issue, not a question of what the end state desired end
1: state is. Definitely, um, and I think uh, one of the things that we should bear in mind is, that, of course, if Russia were to initiate hostilities or to escalate existing hostilities, right. uh, they, they would be acting uh, in violation of international law. They would be. Violating the UN Charter, they would they would be committing any number of crimes uh, yes. when they do so, and and so I mean of course with that it's important to bear that in mind, and so I think the the thing we should be focused on, uh, to the extent that it's possible for us to to influence that behavior, is to to try to prevent that or to to, to avoid it as much as possible. Correct. I think yeah I think we're all on the same page on that.
2: I'll go further. If you like the if you like the so called liberal international order, you should be in favor of avoiding these problems.
1: Definitely, well, because great power conflict is the engine for destroying orders. That's right. that's how you end up uh, with devastated continents. That's how you end up with uh, world war well,
2: this, this is where the claim to an American-led international order meets the tension. Right, it's sometimes hard to have both li- uh, liberal order and American-led, and that's the problem right now.
1: Definitely, and just and coming back to this question of assurances that were given back at the end of the Cold War. Uh, even if there had been no assurances, it's it's still entirely predictable that Russia would react badly to having a, a hostile alliance expanding to its borders. Correct. And and George Kennan foresaw this. He he was one of many that foresaw this at the time, and warned against expansion for exactly that reason. What uh, one of the things that I've sort of toyed around with, or an idea that I've toyed around with, is that if as everyone says, Putin needs conflict with the West to maintain his position and to maintain uh, his control domestically. Uh, Shouldn't it be the the best thing that we could do both for European stability and possibly Russian political reform and change is to stop giving him the enemy that he so desperately wants to have. Uh, And yet for the last 20 years, we've played the role uh, of foil for him, uh, pretty uh, pretty inept foil, I think, but, but still a foil that he can use to justify all sorts of outrageous conduct. Uh, so, so you know, if we if we backed off, uh, I think, or, or and maybe you don't agree, but uh, no,
2: do you I, think
1: I, that, I, that might help?
2: Uh, well, so I'll, um, make, I'll make right. So I'll I'll make I'll make two points here, right? Because you because you raised two different questions, and they both important sure. to raise. Number one, would the U.S. still have problems even if it hadn't offered these assurances in 1990? How do we think about the importance of these assurances given the NATO expansion on its own was a problem or could have been a problem? And then second, how do we think about uh, the intersection between Russian domestic politics and NATO enlargement? So let me let me tackle those two questions. Uh, On the first point, look, the U.S. was going to have problems with Russia almost under any circumstances uh, after the Cold War. Right? Russian power was going to recover from a post-Soviet NATO, and so therefore the U.S. role, the U.S. influence in Europe was going to change. And second, especially once the U.S. began enlarging NATO, it was going to have to figure out way to get along with Russia, and enlarging NATO made that far more difficult. But I think the assur- how the assurances factor into this is it reveals the U.S., or at least in the Russian understanding, makes the U.S. that less trustworthy. Right? If you think about it, what is- Putin has basically said – I will not fall for informal guarantees again. I want a legally binding treaty. So in a way, breaking the assurances of 1990 have both lowered the level of trust and raised the Russian demands. That may not have been the case had there not been assurances in 1990, point number one. So your second point about providing oxygen for kind of Russian domestic politics, you're 100% right. You know, Again, I don't know what motivates Vladimir Putin. I don't know what drives him. I don't know what drives the Russian leadership. But a lot of smart people say this might very well be based on domestic politics. Okay. Well, if that's the case, for goodness sake, why would you give Russia a foil, an adversary, to kind of mobilize the public around? Deny oxygen, right? Deny If there's, if there's a fire at home, deny the darn thing oxygen. Don't expand NATO and say – and say to the Russian leadership, "Haha, I'm going to continue expanding NATO at a time when the Russian leadership is going, see, I can't trust those Westerners." For goodness' sake, you're we're playing right into Russia's very bad hand.
1: Right, and yeah, that, that's the hand that Putin always plays so well. Right, that's that's the the trope in all of the countries So, I, I mean,
2: I, I don't know if Russia is playing a bad hand well, but I know the U.S. is playing a strong hand, poorly.
1: Yes, well, indeed, and and we've seen that in other places as well. Uh, coming back to uh, US foreign policy more broadly under the Biden administration. Uh, you also co-authored an article in Foreign Affairs last year in which you identified uh, what you call a pragmatic realist streak in Biden.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but you also cautioned that his pragmatism may keep him from taking political risks that a rigorous realist perspective requires. Uh, other than the withdrawal from Afghanistan, do you see any other areas where Biden's realist streak is winning out over his pragmatism?
2: Well, so, so a couple of things. Um, since uh, I wrote that article and I wrote it with Stephen Wertheim again, so we, we've uh, done a, a, a one-two step, um, you know, we've seen Biden's pragmatism come out, I think, in two uh, very real ways. Number one, this administration was actually somewhat open to the possibility of EU strategic autonomy, right? And there were actually discussions of this in the in the summer and fall of 2021. And this is a real change to American foreign policy in times past. Previously, the U.S. would react very negatively to hints of European strategic autonomy, but the Biden administration, because it's seeking to kind of disengage from certain key regions, particularly Europe and the Middle East, to focus a bit more upon Asia, was a little more open to this. Policy possibility, point number one. And the second instance in which I see it, I actually do think that part of the Ukraine crisis reveals Biden's pragmatism. For all my criticism that I just offered of how the United States has handled the Ukraine crisis, Biden and his team have actually resisted doubling down on giving Ukraine security guarantees. Biden has basically taken the use of American force off the table, though there's still some possibility of that that I'd like to see uh, foreclosed. He's been willing to meet with Russians. Uh, the, the the leadership team's been willing to meet with Russian interlocutors in Geneva and beyond. So this is an administration that is interested in seeking some at least in going to the motions to try to avoid further escalation that I'm not sure other administrations would have pursued. And just today with his press conference reviewing his first year in office, Mr. Biden was discussing how, look, the U.S. response would be graduated based on what the Russians did. This is not an all-out commitment of the U.S. will support Ukraine come hell or high water, pardon my French. And I think that's roughly uh, in line with a pragmatic streak. I'd like to see more of that going forward.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that was encouraging that he made it uh, clear that the response would be proportionate to whatever the Russians did, that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be one size fits all. Although I'm, I'm already uh, discouraged to see that people are complaining about this uh, as though it, it authorizes or approves of a Russian invasion, provided that it's not too big. Uh, that this is I mean, I, it's I, spun. Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm just impressed that yesterday we couldn't influence the Russian leadership one way or another, and today a statement by Mr. Biden gives them a the green light.
1: <laughs> right, right. No, it, it's it's funny how perceptions of, of what U.S. power is uh, will vary uh, quite a bit depending on what people want the U.S. to do.
2: It's almost uh, like motivated reasoning of some kind.
1: <laughs> could be. All right. Well, and with that, we'll have to close. We're, we're out of time uh, for this episode. But uh, thank you so much, Josh, for coming on. We really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. Uh,
0: Josh Jefferson, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.